Enjoy local voices. Enjoy local opinions. All on one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast DC is the new local app with hundreds of DC area podcasts. Featuring some of the DC area's best personalities, pundits, and provocateurs. Earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts you love instantly. With new programs being added every week, don't hesitate. Download Podcast DC now for free. Available in the App Store or in Google Play. Podcast DC. Listen local. Say It Loud Network and Mean O-Line Media presents the history of being black. Welcome to another episode of the history of being black. I am your black hostess, Eunice Elliott. And I'm always so excited every week to introduce you folks to some wonderful folks that just so happen to be black and just so happen to be American. How about that? See how that worked out? Today we are joined by Dr. Anthony C. Hood. He is a friend of the program officially at this time. We'll call him our first cousin. He We didn't run that past him before we, we had that conversation. Uh, but Dr. Dr. Hood, welcome back to the History of Being Black. Thanks for having me back, Eunice. I didn't read your full bio this 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 time, but uh, tell us Thank what you. you do for your day job. For my day job, I am Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer for First Horizon Bank. And so the reason why I wanted to say what you do for your day job, because it kind of ties into something that I have observed as a passion of yours. You live in a historic neighborhood and you oftentimes will post pictures on your social media of these beautiful, big four sided brick homes that it was a usually in a historically black neighborhood that maybe went through some type of transition. But the first part I want to say is I love how you will post pictures of people's homes and say, this is not my home and it is not for sale. <laughs> you know what? I Because I got in trouble with my neighbors, Eunice. Like, I would have to think so. I believe yeah. you would. Because <laughs> I would be out walking and my neighbors be like, yo, let me holler at you. Like, I done had three people stop by my house, knock on my door, ask me if my house for sale. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, why would you ask me that? Like, yeah, because Anthony posted pictures of your house online. Uh, so I had to start putting that disclaimer in and be like, this is not my house. It is not for sale. Don't go bothering them people. <laughs> But why did you start taking pictures of your neighbor's houses and start posting the stories and, and kind of sharing that with your social media? I've actually always taken pictures of the house because I just love my neighborhood, like the, the character of the homes. You know, most of the homes were built, you know, in the late 20s and the early 30s. And they're just unique. Um, so I have been trying to get people to move into my neighborhood since I've been there since 2004. Um, and it's just really been hard to get people to see the beauty that I see in the neighborhood. When people hear Bush Hills, all they hear is Inslee, they hear Westside, and they think crime and, you know, drugs and things like that. And so it's like, oh, my gosh, like, why would I move over there? And I'm like, it's beautiful over there. And then I go, they invite me to their houses. I'm like, this is the exact same house. Like, you go to these houses in um, – Crestwood and, and Mountain Brook, they were literally built by the same builders in the 20s and 30s, but their house over in their neighborhood is a $800,000 house, and you can buy that same house for $18,000 in my neighborhood. I'm like, who in their right mind would go and spend all that money on the exact same house, sometimes even smaller, when you can just buy this house over here, especially our friends that we went to elementary school with, we went to high school with, but now they went and started touching a little money and they feel like they have to move into a certain neighborhood because of, you know, we have a grocery store and we got this and we got that. And uh, so for me, I think it's just 
it's really been kind of like a marketing tool because I just want my friends to come and live in my neighborhood instead of me having to get in my car and drive 45 minutes to visit them. I want y'all just live down the street so I can fix my drink and walk down the street in my flip-flops and my shorts and walk to their house. See what I'm saying? His name is Dr. Hood. So (laughs) tell me, (laughs) for people who don't know Inslee, uh, you're a a suburb of Birmingham, if you will. So someone who doesn't live in Alabama is listening to us. Every city, every state has a community that at some point was a thriving black neighborhood. And then more than likely, at some point, a freeway or highway was uh, constructed probably to cut that neighborhood off from the downtown area. And so then you see these neighborhoods start to uh, suffer and uh, uh, they just kind of became abandoned. Why, what do you think happened specifically in your neighborhood? But this is a story across America where black folks weren't allowed to live in the suburbs and, um, and where our communities were, we're not there anymore. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right on, on the fact of every community has an Inslee. Everybody, every community has a West Side. And literally, for whatever reason, a lot of the West Sides are the areas where you had large concentrations of black folks. The only clarification I would make to that is most of these neighborhoods were built by white people. Um, and the, the neighborhoods that I'm talking about, the Inslee, Bush Hills and stuff like that, they were originally built by white people in the 20s and, and the 30s. It wasn't until the 50s and the 60s when black people started moving in. And they were able to build those houses in the 20s and the 30s because of the federal government, you know, doing redlining. And so, and typically those were the ones that were in hazardous areas that were next to the coal mines, the steel factories, the poultry plants and things like that. But in the 50s and the 60s is when we became became a little bit more upwardly mobile, we were able to start moving into those communities, not without oppression and bombings and, you know, all the different kind of things. But as we started moving into those communities, that's when you had people start fleeing out to the suburbs and what is traditionally known as white flight. Now, fast forward 40, 50 years, you're seeing a lot of those same people who fled to the suburbs and now Black and brown people are now starting to also go to the suburbs, and you're seeing people now starting to retrench and come back to the same neighborhoods that they built back in the 20s and the 30s. So when we talk about historically black neighborhoods, I think that's just a nuance that we need to make sure that we're clear on is that oftentimes these neighborhoods were not built by us. We just moved in for a few decades, but now people are starting to come back and reclaim those neighborhoods. And when you say reclaim, it's two terms that come up a lot when we talk about neighborhoods, especially those historically black neighborhoods. Redlining, you mentioned, and that's, well, as you mentioned, the areas that had high, have high concentrations of black folks. It also affects our business communities, um, where the bank then devalues or lowers the value of that property because it's occupied by black folks in general is a kind of a soft way to say it. But you, you work at a bank. What's a better way to explain that? Well, the, the I think it's important to note that it was the federal government, the ones that actually created these maps. They were the ones that deemed neighborhoods being desirable versus undesirable. And then banks use those maps to determine where they would lend or not lend. And insurance companies decided where they would 
make policies versus those that they would not insure. And so a bank would not make a loan in an area where the homeowner could not get insurance. And so Mm -hmm. if you had areas where you could not get insurance or you could not get a loan based on the federal government drawing these maps, then those were going to be the places where you couldn't get a loan not only to buy a house, but you couldn't get a loan to start a business, to grow a business or things like that. Um, And so it wasn't that the banks themselves created these conditions. It was the federal government that really created conditions through which banks were incentivized to to lend in certain areas versus those that they're not. So now we have what's called the Community Reinvestment Act that actually encourages, dare I say, mandates that lending institutions have to lend and, and provide services in the communities that they serve on in a basis that does not, you know, uh, spur gentrification and exclusion. So when you say that was a federal government plan that then the banks and insurance company, you know, went by, that's when we're talking about institutionalized racism, right? I think a lot of times certain terms get thrown out right now and people who are not uh, the benefactor or are not harmed by institutionalized racism, they just say, I'm not racist. And so what a lot of times people don't realize is that the country was based on racist mandates from the Constitution on was based on disenfranchising a certain group of people. And so that's why it's so important for people like you to be in positions that you're in, because it's really going to take breaking down the system brick by brick. How do you, yeah, how do, you do that and, and not feel like it's not going to be done in your lifetime? Or do you feel like <laughs> I don't know. You know, in the United States, you know, it, it took us 400 years to get to the situation that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. So to think that we're going to resolve 400 years of exclusion in four years is just not going to happen. Right. Um, you know, so there's been a lot of conversations around reparations for years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a lot of people have been very uh, frustrated uh, and cynical around, you know, black people and allies have been arguing for reparations for years. And opponents of reparations have said, well, even if we could determine a dollar figure, where are we going to get that money from? We can't afford it. But then we hit this pandemic, and then we can come up with $2 trillion just like that in a couple of weeks. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, right. so it's like, okay, we couldn't find money to do reparations, but we could find money to do PPP and, you know, all these other things. And then we got another round of several trillion dollars that's coming down the pipe. So I think that actually shows that we can do what we want to do if there's enough will and intentionality around doing it in a sense of urgency. We just haven't had the sense of urgency. Now, I think what's important, going back to what you said earlier about the highway system, in addition to these red line maps that were created, the federal government also used transportation and the building of our highways and freeways to actually cut off you know, black neighborhoods from other neighborhoods to create these barriers so that you can create a segregated environment or to totally displace and disperse, you know, communities of color. So that happened because of our federal government. And so now this current administration under the leadership of Secretary uh, Pete Buttigieg is now it seems like it's almost almost de facto reparations because now they are authorizing this money to redress some of the harms that have been created by our Department of Transportation over the last almost 100 years. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out to where your transportation probably for the first time is now having racial equity at its core and trying to not only prevent 
you know, disparate harm, but also correct, create, uh, correct the disparate harm that we've seen over the decades. And when we're driving on these uh, major freeways and highways, we're not necessarily black folks and white folks ain't thinking about the racist nature of its location most times, unless you uh, have an understanding of why it is located exactly where it's located. So now right. talk to me about you want your friends and your, your high school classmates to move into your neighborhood. What's the difference between neighborhood revitalization and gentrification? So neighborhood revitalization and gentrification oftentimes fall along the same line. I think the important thing to talk about is displacement. You know, so gentrification is really bringing new resources into communities that have been starved of, of resources, where you've actually had disinvestment instead of investment. And so neighborhood revitalization is actually putting new people, new resources, and refreshing uh, a neighborhood. The challenge with that is oftentimes these neighborhoods are currently inhabited by low, sometimes extremely low income individuals, a lot of vacant, abandoned and blighted homes. And now you have people with means, oftentimes a lot of means, high net worth individuals that are moving to these communities and they're investing huge sums of money, which is great because that's what people in these communities have been asking for is we need somebody to tear down some of these houses. We need to build new houses. We need to build new bars and restaurants and grocery stores. But when that happens, when those developers come in, when those new homeowners come in, the property values will increase. And for those people who are living in these previously disinvested neighborhoods, if they are renters, what's going to happen is when the property value goes up, the landlords are going to raise the rent because they can raise the rent. And that's when you start seeing displacement. So the people who have been asking for the investment and the resources, now once it comes in, they're no longer able to afford living where they live right now. The nuance that we have to look at is when those of us who have previously, we were first movers into these neighborhoods and we were actual homeowners, and we bought these homes for pennies on the dollar. When the property values goes up, our net worth goes up. You know, we paid twenty five thousand for the house and now the house is worth two hundred and fifty thousand right. dollars. So now my equity is increased. My net worth increases. Now I have the option to either sell my house, cash out and then move somewhere else. Or I can refinance my home, pull some of that equity out. And now I have money to invest in my kids education. I can invest in repairs and improvements to my home. I can maybe invest in a business, which that's what happened to the folks in the 20s and the 30s when they benefited from the federal government's you know, infusion and the bank's infusion of cash into homeowners, they were able to use the equity from their home ownership to start businesses. And now these are second, third generation businesses that were benefited from these racist policies that we had back in the 20s and the 30s. So now we have an opportunity now, particularly my friends that are of means, invest in these communities because you are going to benefit because the property values are going to go up versus when you buy in the suburbs, you're paying $700,000 for a home that may actually devalue over time, particularly when those people flee the suburbs, which I personally think is, is a likelihood that may happen. In the same way people fled from inner cities out to the suburbs, it's cyclical. Those people are going to flee the suburbs and come back into the inner city. And those people who are in the suburbs, they're going to be left holding the bag. And they're going to be like, wow, I should have moved to and been Anthony's neighbor just like he asked me years ago. 
<laughs> well, and that's the thing that when you talk about um, the, the policies of the 20s and 30s, uh, again, it, it all goes together where we talk about we don't think about racism. We think about Department of Transportation or the federal government, Department of Transportation. But then when you have the property values that were um, redlined and so therefore deemed less valuable, but then the schools are financed by property taxes. That's why the folks who are out in the suburbs have better education and resources than the people who have kids that live in these neighborhoods. All of that seems like a flawed plan for anything to be equitable. And so when we look at the system the way it is, it all, again, has to be deconstructed brick by brick. Like you can't have these kids' education be funded by property taxes when you have devalued the property. <laughs> right. And so, you know, again, you know, we, we throw around these terms, you know, white flight and things like that. And you read these racist policies again. It, it causes this visceral reaction from people to say, I'm not racist. And, you know, my parents weren't racist because they moved us to the suburbs. They just wanted a better life for me. And so we have to be careful about the language. And I say careful because, you know, again, we have to do all this tiptoeing because we don't want to offend people. But at the mm -hmm. end of the day, oftentimes it's not the individual that is racist or being racist. It's the policies that create a disparate impact that benefits one race over another race. And there are a lot of people who have benefited from these racist policies. So when we say you have benefited from a racist policy, it doesn't mean that you are racist. It just means that you have benefited from a system that was designed to suppress one race and benefit another race. And that's the thing, because that's the only thing they know, and they weren't on the short end of the stick. There's this idea of, I don't have privilege. You know, I've had a hard life, and it's like, okay, but we're talking about from the Rudy to the Tootie. <laughs> it's like, I know you don't realize there was a moment. So when you say you purchased your home, you said in 2004? Yes. Okay, so now since 2004, your life and career has changed. You have uh, become a PhD. You've gotten great opportunities, business opportunities. What is the mindset that you've had from when that was a home that you could get pennies on the dollar and more than likely, you know, great for your young family that you stayed? And why didn't you? Uh, a lot of times the mindset is I'm doing better. Let me move out. Why didn't you? I mean, for one, like those are my folks, you know, those are my people. Like I grew up on the West Side. So, again, those who are not familiar, like my mom was literally born on that street that I live oh. on right now. I was born on that street. Uh, at community hospital, community slash Holy Family Hospital. You know, so that's what I know. And I just have a lot of affinity uh, for that part of town. You know, when I was growing up, going to high school, I rode the bus all four years to high school. And that was the street that my bus went down uh, on the way to school. And I, I said when I was in high school, one day I'm going to live in this neighborhood because oh, wow. I was just so enamored with it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, fast forward, you know, how many years after that? You know, 10, 15 years after that, I was able to buy a home uh, in that neighborhood. So for me, I like that part. But the other part is it just makes good financial sense. Like, I just can't see myself if I'm making $100,000 a year. Why would I go out and buy a house that costs five, six, seven times what I make in a year? Like, that just doesn't make good financial sense to me. I come from a, a line of people that would never buy a house that costs more than what they made in a year. So mm. my grandfather, he was a coal miner. If he made $35,000 a year, like, he paid $12,000 for his house and he paid cash for it. You know, mm. my dad was the same way. He paid cash for his house. You know, so that's just the mindset that I've always had is that instead of me putting money in a mortgage... Why don't I just buy something cash that now I can then take that money and invest in a business, invest in buying other property, invest in my children's education? Like, that's just the way my mind works. And I know that's 
totally opposite from what a lot of people think or what financial advisors tell you or bankers tell you because they say buy as much house as you can afford. Well, who determines how much house I can afford? I should be determining that, not not the person that's trying to sell me, you know, uh, a mortgage or a home equity line. I should be determining that. And so I've just never felt the need to keep up with the Joneses, if you will. I would love to live in one of these, you know, nice, you know, gated communities, you know, but I'm just fine where I am right now. Let's see, saying that that you learned that from your dad and from your granddad, that's still the form of generational wealth that was passed down to you that a lot of times in our communities we didn't have, right? And so a lot of times when we're talking about generational wealth versus generational curses that were passed down, you know, financial literacy is not taught the way it should be. You know, they teach you how to, you know, add and subtract, but we need to talk about interest rates and how much more you're paying and credit and how it affects, you know, those things I didn't learn until I was already out of college and on them streets and had to figure out, you know, how to get out of the hole. And so it's great that you had that opportunity. Are you consciously passing those lessons along to your daughters? Oh, absolutely. So uh, we play Monopoly a lot and I always mm-hmm. win and they get frustrated and I never let them win. I'm going to beat them every time. But, you know, I use it as a teaching tool to say, okay, I'm not winning because I'm just smart. I'm winning because I understand how money works and I want y'all to also understand how money works. So we, I actually just use it as a teaching tool to be like, why would you buy this property, the boardwalk properties? I never buy the boardwalk properties. The $400 properties, I'm like, it makes no sense to buy those properties. I always buy the two properties right after go and my kids know I'm about those properties and now they try to buy them before I can and then try to extort me for money because they know those are my favorite properties but it, that's just how the world works in my mind is that you buy these undervalued properties because the upside is just so much greater the house that we live in now it's worth triple what I paid for it I don't know any of my friends that live in the suburb that their house today is worth three times what they paid for it But your friends like being able to say they live in XYZ neighborhood. And I think so much, uh, I think not only your peers or or people older than us, you know, young people, people like to say something or present something that looks good, even if they're struggling to maintain it. And so I think that's a mindset just of everybody in America. But unfortunately, it really affects our community to where we are not building and not passing anything down. Yeah. Neighborhoods alive. Yeah. I think the other thing, Eunice, and I, I know you can relate to this. When people come from out of Birmingham, you know, because Birmingham tends to lag behind other cities. When people come and they look at neighborhoods like Bush Hills, like Titusville, all these other previously disinvested communities, you know, they like, how is it possible that you can get this 2,500 square foot house for $12,000? Like, that is just mind boggling. Like, how come somebody just doesn't come in and buy this entire block? And I just struggle my shows like, Bruh, I don't even know. I don't I don't even know how somebody can go out and buy a seventy thousand dollar SUV and not go and buy three of these houses that they can then rent for seven, eight hundred dollars a piece and then let the rental properties buy the seventy thousand dollar car. Like I just don't understand why people don't think that way. So people that have lived in Atlanta, they live in Charlotte, they've seen the effects of gentrification where you could have bought those houses for pennies on the dollar and now they're worth five, six, seven times that amount. So those are the people when they come and visit that's when they go and get a real estate agent. they like, look, I'm going to buy in Birmingham because the folks in Birmingham don't even understand what they're sitting on. And so I'm trying to get the folks who grew up here to go ahead and invest so that they don't look crazy five years from now when they can't even afford to live in these neighborhoods anymore. 
No, but your 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 social media posts showing off your neighborhood, they obviously work since your neighbors are upset that you have people driving by the houses creeping. And I thought you were going to say when you said how people want to know how can they get a 2,500 square foot house with $12,000, I thought the answer was racism. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, we'll, go with your answer too. we'll go with your answer too. <laughs> so I, I guess I don't even have to ask you about the action item for the hashtag be the change. We always like to leave our listeners with an idea, something that they can do right now, whether it's to build the communities they live in or or invest. What what would be an action item that anybody can just look into doing right now? By the block. And you, you, you've the seen block. the hashtag uh, by the block, but literally there's never been a better time to buy, like especially with interest rates being at historic lows. Like, you know, getting a, you can get a loan for less than 3%, you know, interest rate on a 30-year mortgage or even a 15-year mortgage. Like, a lot of folks need to tap into the equity in their homes and probably go out and start investing in, in real estate, particularly in these neighborhoods that you know are, you know, are going to be revitalized. Like, why wouldn't you do that? By the block, y'all. He, he, he Hashtag by the block. Dr. Hood said it. Hashtag by the block, hashtag Monopoly. Buy all three properties in the color block. That's how you win Monopoly. That's how you win the real estate game. People have been doing it for decades. We just got to catch up. I think it's beautiful. You're a young man, but you have old school thoughts and, and, and the good old school thoughts. You know, you're a family man, you're an educated man, you're an entrepreneur, but you also have the ideas and thoughts to help. You know, we, we need people to help massage our brains in different ways that we might not naturally think about or know about or not even realize is attainable for us. And so I appreciate you for when you do share things, you don't just share about properties, you'll share about your people's LinkedIn profiles, you'll share about resumes. And I appreciate that when you get these nuggets of knowledge you do try to pass it along now whether somebody takes it or not you know that's on them but I, I see you Dr. Hood I appreciate you always trying to share what you know and I appreciate you sharing your time and your knowledge with our listeners and, and being a friend to the program and uh, hopefully you'll come back uh, when not if but when I call to ask you to have another uh, great conversation with us please. You know I will okay. thank you Eunice I appreciate you. I appreciate you and I appreciate you guys listening to another episode and we'll talk to you next time on the history of being black. The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Eunice Elliott, associate producer Lauren Turner, edited by Ken Johnson, executive producers Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcast. The History of Being Black podcast is a mean old lion and say it loud network production.